I just had a deep sense of appreciation because as we're singing, come ye thankful people, come, I get to stand up here on a Seahawks morning (laughs) and see the thankful people who have come. I appreciate you. I appreciate the priority that you make of worship. You know, we love to be the world champions, but here you are saying there's something even more important. And so thank you. Thank you for being faithful disciples of the Lord. Thank you for making worship of God a priority. Thank you for being thankful people. There are a lot of things I love about this sweetheart church. One of them is the way that you jump right into a challenge. So when I say, hey, let's fast on Wednesdays during the month of covenant, you are eager to do it. And I know many and many of you have participated in that. Uh, I know that uh, some of you fasted all day on Wednesdays from food. And by the way, you can do it again this week. I know that some of you fasted from technology. The uh, Burgess family decided to jump into the middle of this. And so they were talking about it as a family, which is a great thing to do with their young people. And uh, Casey, their high schooler, said, I'm going to fast from, uh, from making jokes at other, other kids' expense. I thought that was good. And, uh, and little Ryan, sixth grade Ryan, not to be outdone, said, I'm going to fast from three things. I'm going to fast from fruit and vegetables, (laughs) going to school, and listening to my parents. (laughs) So he's in the game. He may not quite have it right, but, but he's in the game. I wonder how many of you are in the game. You know, we may not quite have it right, but... This is a season when, when the, as a church, we've said, we're going to take being a disciple of Jesus more seriously. Are you in the game? And maybe you intended to, to do the journaling and you forgot. You can still pull it out. You can still get it offline. Five more, there's five more days of this before we have our dedication Sunday. Pull out your journal this week. Give five minutes to the Lord and study what does Jesus say about being a disciple of Jesus. Forget what you didn't do or forgot. Start this week. Start now. Maybe you've forgotten to fast this Wednesday. Let's fast together. Let's break our fast together. Let's come to the table. Next, this Wednesday night is our, our last table. And if you haven't participated in that, you have missed something special. Come and join us. Next week, come and let's celebrate Covenant Weekend, Covenant Sunday. We're going to start with a prayer vigil. I'm disappointed to say there are a lot of open slots. I would love to fill every 30-minute slot for 24 hours of prayer. Is it really not possible that a church this size could say, yeah, each of us will take a chunk and we will pray for our church, our community, our world? Isn't that worth doing? So go back there and sign up. Be a part of that. And then show up Sunday morning and we're going to have a great time. We're going we're to take these cards and we're going to fill out what the Lord has been telling us to do. These are covenant cards. This is just between you and God. No one else is going to see it. We're going to fill them out and we're going to turn them in as an act of worship. And together we're going to celebrate the way God is creating us to be better disciples of Jesus. And then after that, we're going to have a party. We're going to have a party and we're going to be a lot happier than that kid is up there when we have our party. We're going to, we're going to have food and the gathering place is going to be decorated and it will be gorgeous. So come and be a part of this next weekend. It will be a very special time for us and he will like it better than I'm sure. We're going to continue this morning with a Jesus description as we find it in the Sermon on the Mount of what it means to be a radical follower of His, what it means to be a revolutionary disciple of Jesus. And I'll just tell you right now, you better brace yourself because Jesus is going to get personal with us this morning. All right? And I want to remind you, these are the words of the Lord. I'm just repeating them to you. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. Why don't we read this together? In fact, let's do something that 
the church traditionally has done. Let's stand for the reading of the gospel. Would you stand? And let's read this together. Go. Do not store up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. This is the word of the Lord. Holy Spirit, will you please take these words, bypass our defensiveness, take them right to our heart that we might learn what it means to follow Jesus with our wealth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have a seat. It is a sad fact that many who claim the name of Jesus do not live like Jesus and do not care to obey him. I suspect that even in this gathering that there will be a large percentage who would say that they they believe they are a Christian because Jesus has saved them from going to hell when they die, but they do not understand or care that Jesus also wants to save them in the way they live. Yet when we read the Sermon on the Mount, it could not be clearer. Jesus actually expects us to obey what he teaches. He's not saying this stuff to hear himself talk. He's not saying this stuff to be admired for being an eloquent preacher. He actually expects us to obey what he teaches if we're his disciples. Revolutionary disciples of Jesus keep their word according to the Sermon on the Mount. They control their anger. They love their enemies. Revolutionary disciples of Jesus do not nurture bitterness, but they forgive those who've done horrible things to them. They respond to persecution with kindness. Revolutionary disciples don't cultivate lust. They preserve their marriages. They fight against divorce. Revolutionary disciples give and pray and fast to be seen and loved and admired by God and not to show off in front of others. That's what we've been hearing so far. That's what this sermon teaches us. This morning, Jesus is going to meddle even further in our lives because he's going to talk about money again. Did you know that of all of the topics Jesus preached on, except for the kingdom of God, money is the number one topic? Did you know that? He talks more about money than he does hell, heaven, love, forgiveness. He talks more about money than all of those topics. I wonder if Jesus ever got anonymous notes on his blue cards saying, all you ever do is talk about money. (laughs) Well, he did. Why? Because he had a big church to pay for and staff salaries to cover and ministries and missions that depended on the faithful giving of his congregation? Is that why he talked about money? No. 
He had none of those things. Jesus didn't have a budget to raise. He didn't have a debt to pay off. And yet he still talked about money a lot. Why? Because apparently he thought that the way his followers handle their money or are handled by their money is essential to their discipleship. Is it any less true today? Any less true in Gig Harbor? One of my favorite Billy Graham quotes is this, Give me five minutes with a person's checkbook and I will tell you where their heart is. So would you be willing to hand your checkbook to Billy Graham? And if you did, what would it say about your heart? What would would it say about what matters most to you? About what it means to you to be a disciple of Jesus? Would your check register give any indication that you are a follower of Jesus Christ? It's It's a fair question. So let's see what Jesus has to say about this important matter. We don't have pledge cards today. We're not in the middle of a stewardship campaign. We are simply trying to listen to what Jesus is teaching us this morning. And he has some very pointed things to say about money and wealth. Here's the first thing he says. What are you investing in? What are you investing in? Verse 19. Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth. What are you investing in, Jesus is asking. Like any prudent couple, Cindy and I, save. We save about 20% of our income. We've done that because we don't just keep spending more. That works that way. And we have invested it to the day that one day we will be able to retire comfortably. And Scripture affirms the wisdom of saving. Again and again, as a matter of fact. But the emphasis of this text is not saving, it is hoarding. That's the idea behind the word storing up. Storing up, as Jesus uses it here, means to amass a huge pile of wealth, more than you could ever spend, so that it just sits there and the corrosive effects of nature and time and humanity, that's what's represented by moth and rust and thieves, just eats it away. Last year I got into our little uh, safe at home to get some cash out and I hadn't been in there for a while and when I opened it it just smelled like mildew and the, the bills that I pulled out were slimy. Have you ever done that? I couldn't help wondering, wow, if I had not done something about this, how long would it be before these bills just deteriorated, just were eaten away? Isn't that exactly what Jesus is talking about here? Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth, Jesus says. Rather, he says, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Make investments that are eternal. Make investments that will benefit more than yourself. Invest in the work of the kingdom. Spend your money in ways that lives are touched and that the needy are helped and that the work of God is advanced. That's what he says to do. And then here comes the punchline. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Say that with me. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. We could stop right there. If we just reflected on that for 20 minutes, that would make the point. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Is it not true? Is it not true that the things we invest in, the things we park our money in, become the dearest things to us? The things we obsess about, the things we worry about, the things we focus on. That's what it means that our heart is there. Where we put our money is where we put our hearts. I was watching one of those real estate shows about uh, uh, sales in Los Angeles. And uh, in one episode, a guy came in and he bought a $10 million house. And he pushed it over with a bulldozer so that he could build a $30 million house. 
because the $10 million house was crummy. Where do you think his heart is? If you invest in making yourself more and more wealthy, your heart will be in your balance sheet. If you invest in luxurious cars or opulent homes, your heart will be in these beautiful things. If you invest in extravagant vacations, your hearts will be in your trips. Jesus says, though, that if you invest in things of the kingdom, things that matter to God, if you care for the poor and you support missionaries, and yes, if you support the church that you love and believe in, then your heart is going to be there. That's eternal investment. One of the few disappointments of my long ministry here is that more Chapel Hill folks have not left a portion of their estate to the Lord's work. And I've never understood that. I don't get it. They work hard to leave huge legacies for their kids. And honestly, I have never seen a trust baby that wasn't damaged by too much money. Ever. Cindy and I have tithed our estate to the Lord. It is a witness to the world that in our lives and in our deaths, our hearts were not held captive by more and more beautiful things, by nicer and nicer homes, by more expensive cars or nicer vacations. This last week, I celebrated another birthday, and I was talking with someone about how my perspective on life has changed over the years since I turned 39. (laughs) And I'm convinced that one of the most telling qualities of a fulfilling Christian life is this, contentment. For those of you who have been around a while, would would that ring true for you? One of the most fulfilling Uh, One of the most telling signs of a fulfilling Christian life is contentment. Being able to reach the point where you can say, you know what? I have enough. That's not the word of the world. What's the world's word? More. Christian contentment says, I have enough. I have enough. I don't need one more darn thing. I am content. And I read a quote this week that said, discontentment makes rich people poor, while contentment makes poor people rich. That makes sense? And then you might also add, contentment makes rich people generous. When we learn to be content, money loses its power over us, and our hearts are drawn to invest in things that make an eternal difference, and not just buy more baubles that will corrode with time every one of which we will leave behind when we die. The old saying, you never see a U-Haul trailer behind a hearse. Right? Every bauble we will leave behind. Throughout the Sermon on the Mount, the heart is the heart of the matter. Are you beginning to see that? Throughout the Sermon on the Mount, the heart is the heart of the matter. Jesus doesn't care what you do on the outside. For him, that's just play acting. Or the word that he uses is... Hypocrite. It's being a hypocrite. Jesus wants to know what is going on in your heart. So it's not enough that you don't murder someone. If in your heart you nurture hatred towards someone, then you are a murderer, he says. It's not enough that you don't commit adultery. If in your heart you cultivate lust towards someone, then in your heart you are an adulterer. It's not enough that you give big gifts or make big prayers or fast dramatically. If you are not performing those acts of worship to please God, then in your hearts, you are a hypocrite. The heart is the heart of the matter. And now we come to an explicit heart text. Where your treasure is, there will your 
heart be also. And so here's a a tip that Jesus gives us. If you want a practical way to begin to shape your heart in God's direction, if we want our hearts to be good and better, if we want our hearts to look more like the heart of Jesus, then one way is to learn to give. One way is to invest in things of the kingdom. Invest generously in the things that please and serve God. And when we do, Jesus says, our hearts will follow our money. Even if it doesn't feel right at the beginning, when we give obediently, our hearts will follow our treasure. I was taught as a child to tithe by my parents, who have been generous tithers all of my life. I was trained to understand that the first 10% of everything I have does not belong to me. It belongs to the Lord. In fact, it's taken right out of the paycheck. I don't see it. I don't want to be tempted, but I'm not because I've just lived this way so long. And that I was taught to, that to spend that money would be, in my mind and actually in the Scripture's definition, stealing from God. The first 10%. And, of course, every time you talk about the tithe, there are non-tithers who will complain to you, well, that's an Old Testament principle. Uh, tithing is not found in the New Testament. Well, let's pretend it's true. It's not, by the way. But let's just pretend it's true. Then tell me this. What should a New Testament believer give? What should, if, if the tithe is not the number, what should the New Testament believer give? All of the Old Testament folks had to count on was that someday a Messiah was going to come. Well, he has come. You know him. You met him. He loves you. He saved you. Jesus is his name. So now that you know who he is, how does your giving reflect your gratitude for what Christ has done for you? The Christ you know, not just the Christ you long for someday. Are you $5 a week grateful? Are you 1% a week grateful? Are you two pennies out of the dollar grateful? If not the tithe then what would your number be? What would you choose to give that would express your gratitude to the Lord for His generosity for you? Tell me. Lots of Christians never even think about it. They're so busy storing up wealth for themselves that they give little or nothing to the work of the kingdom. Really, though, can you imagine that a true disciple of Jesus would be less generous than Old Testament believers who could only long for His coming? You know that commercial that says, what's in your wallet? Jesus says, what's in your heart? Where your treasure goes is one sure indicator of where you really are in your heart. Jesus says it. Now we jump to the end of the passage. At Wednesday, we'll talk about that weird eye of the lamp thing in the middle. That's what we'll do on the table. I think it makes a, it's a good point, don't have the time. But we jump to the end of the passage here. And Jesus gets even harder and more explicit. Let's read this out loud. Verse 23, ready, go. No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Pretty clear, isn't it? Actually, it gets even starker when you know the original language because that last word that reads money is actually the word mammon. Say mammon. Mammon was the personification of wealth. In later Christian art, in fact, mammon was portrayed as a god. There is the god mammon being worshipped. See, he's holding the money bag in his hand. And it fits with this teaching. Jesus 
is presenting two competing deities, God and mammon. And he says it is not possible to worship both of them. You will either love one and hate the other, or hate the one and despise the other. In fact, he uses the word twice, impossible twice. It is impossible, impossible to love God and love mammon at the same time. The key word to this text here is right at the beginning, serve. Serve. Jesus doesn't say no man can have wealth. We have plenty of examples in Scripture of wealthy persons who use their wealth to the glory of God. Jesus doesn't say no man can have wealth. He says no man can serve wealth. And that is a very powerful image. The word serve is the same word as slave. Jesus paints the picture of someone who is in chains. Someone who is held in bondage by Lord Mammon. We may think we own our money, but in this state of the heart, we discover that our money owns us. It is, in fact, like a relationship between an abuser and his victim. Everyone can see she's being abused. Even she knows she's being abused in the relationship. And still, she keeps returning to her abuser for more abuse. Mammon is an awful, abusive God. And if we serve it, If we live for it, if it becomes our source of identity, then no matter how much we have, it is never enough. We are enslaved. We will never be satisfied. Martin Luther once said, the more you get, the more you want. You will always be aiming for something higher and better. I think the reason that Jesus preached so often about money was that it was such a problem back then. It was the key source of of anxiety and concern and conflict. So let me ask this question. Is it any difficult for any less difficult for us today in Gig Harbor? Is it any different in our culture today? Is the storing up of wealth and the pursuit of things that will make us comfortable or keep up our image or distract us from our emptiness any less an issue today in Gig Harbor than it was 2,000 years ago in Judea? No. Could anyone here be struggling in the battle between these two masters to trying to decide whom they will serve? Anyone here this morning might be in that struggle? I wonder how many here long to be a better disciple of Jesus and yet they are in bondage to Lord Mammon. So how would we know if, in fact, he is this abusive master over us? Several ways. Let's start with the Billy Graham test. Just look at your checkbook. Look at your Quicken accounts. How do you spend your money? Do you give faithfully and generously and first to the Lord? Or does God get your leftovers if you have anything left over? Are you unable to tithe because you have so much credit card debt from buying things you don't need to impress people you don't even like that you don't have anything left over to give? If so, Lord Mammon might have his shackles on you. How about your career? Do you make choices not based upon what God wants you to do or what is best for your family or what is best for your health but upon how big your paycheck will be and how juicy the perks? If so, can you feel Lord Mammon breathing down your neck? Or how about your attitude right now? As this sermon has progressed, have you found your neck stiffening and your face flushing? 
Are you offended at what Jesus is really saying here? And here it is, that the stingy person cannot possibly be a true disciple of the most generous person who ever lived. The stingy person cannot possibly be the true disciple of the most generous person that ever lived. If you are offended by this topic, perhaps that is the sound of Lord Mammon scratching on your cell block door. During the 11th and 12th centuries, knights were required to be baptized before leaving for the Crusades. And some of these knights felt conflicted because they couldn't imagine how they could kill in battle after having been baptized in the name of the one who called them to turn the other cheek. So they came up with a solution to their problem. When the knight was being immersed in the baptismal waters, he held his sword arm above the water. Take a look. In other words, he was saying, I will let Jesus save every part of me except for my sword. It seems to me that today, Christians are baptized this way. I will let Jesus save every part of me except for my wallet. John Wesley once said, the last part of a man to be converted is his purse. I wonder how many here this morning would have to admit that that is true for them. You love God, you're trying to serve Jesus, but you have not baptized your wallet. You have not given Christ the lordship over your checkbook. I do not know how you can read this teaching of Jesus and not be nervous about that fact. Because he could not be more clear. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. No man can serve God and mammon.